morning, uh, reading from Genesis chapter 1, starting verse 27 and continuing to chapter 2, verse 15, and I'm reading from the NIV. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the, face of, on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Thus the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from there it separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx, onyx, thank you, Colin, are also there. The name of the second is the... The Gihon, it winds through the entire land of Kush. The name of the third is the Tigris, and it runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. As I said before, great to be with you uh, for a few weeks uh, looking at this stuff together. Uh, each week I'll try and put out a, uh, an outline of where I'm going that Colin will send out the emails. I know some people find that really helpful to take notes. Uh, it helps them when the preacher wanders off to know where he's up to and that sort of thing. Uh, for some of you that's uh, not, not helpful at all, it's fine, whatever the case. Uh, but I'll, I'll aim to do that as we go on. Uh, but why don't I pray as we get into this together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your wonderful love towards us in your Son. And as we consider your word, uh, help us to uh, reflect on it well, take it to heart, and to think about how we honour you in your world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of us have uh, that sort of love-hate relationship when it comes to work. 
Uh, I think some of us live to work and some of us work to live. You know, it depends. So some, some the, the you know, weekends are a break so they can refresh and get back into work because they just love it so much and they invest in it. For some, they're just hanging out till Friday so that they can have the, the weekend off. You know, the whole purpose of a job is to get money that you spend you know, when you have the opportunity to spend it. You know, the attitudes are quite different depending on who you are. And those of us who've had jobs, currently have jobs, whatever, uh, we know that there, there are normally bits about jobs we, we might like or love and bits about them we could just do without. Yeah, there's no question about that. Uh, I read this uh, interview with a guy called Horace Whittle. He was a dock worker for 47 years, and every day he said he was woken up by his alarm clock before it got light. Okay, so in the dark, his alarm clock would just jangle and get him out of, out of bed in the morning. He did this for 47 years before dawn, rain, hail, snow. And then after 47 years, he was retiring. So what he did was he took his alarm clock to work with him, and he flattened it under an 80-ton hydraulic press, right? Yeah, that's what he was thinking. He was interviewed afterwards and uh, said, you know, how did he, you know, how did he feel about this act of crushing his alarm clock? And uh, this is what he said. It was a lovely feeling. <laughs> Very understated, you know, but you, you can get where he's coming from. And our attitudes to work, I think they vary uh, depending on a whole lot of factors. Like, depends on when you were born. Uh, I remember one of the kids in the, that was interviewed, one of the hundred. I was surprised, Stephen, there were so many kids with American accents here in Woodcroft, but there you go, you know. There were hundred, hundred kids, you know. But one of them said, I'm going to do what my dad did, does, dad does. And, uh, and then asked the question, what is your dad? I don't know, you know. <laughs> and at one level, of course, for him it made no difference at all. But throughout history, it's almost made no difference at all. Most people have just done what their parents did in most parts of the world. And in fact, apart from the West right now, that's still a reality. Most kids born into families, but they'll tend to do what their mum or their dad did, and just following that pattern. And we have a much more you know, elitist, make-your-own-way-in-life, choose-your-destiny your sort of thing happening in the West right now. So it can affect when you were born, can, can affect be affected by what family you're born into, even in our culture. So Sue and I, born in very different families. Um, Sue was born in a family, four kids, parents, tertiary educated. The understanding was they would complete high school and go to university and get tertiary education. All four kids did that. Now, I was born into a family, four kids. Neither of my parents were tertiary educated and there was no expectation we would finish high school. So I was the only child in my family that finished high school or went to university. Your family of origin can affect your attitude towards work. Your stage of life. Uh, you know, whether you're a student, a stay-at-home parent, unemployed, retiree, all those things affect the way you think about work and employment. It can be affected by the job itself. You know, some jobs suit us and our talents and some we're just doing it because it has to be done you know for all sorts of practical reasons but but whichever way you hit it most of us are just so aware that work employment does tend to have a dominant impact on your life 
from a few different points of view. One is it uses up a lot of time. Statistics indicate that the average Australian will work about 100,000 hours during the course of their life, second only to the amount of time you sleep. So it's a big, big chunk of life. But also I reckon the whole question of employment in our culture does affect the way you feel about yourself. Um, you know, when you're in a social setting, meeting people for the first time, what's one of the first questions that pops up? Right? It is, what do you do? Okay. Now, socially, it's just a great way of connecting, of course. It's, it's polite and friendly. But do you ever have that feeling like we're all being sort of levelled? You know, <laughs> People are just working out where you, where you fit and how they connect with you. It can be so defining, I think. Uh, what we're doing for three weeks is just exploring a whole range of those sort of issues, but especially what the Bible says about work. Now, we can't, we can't look at everything, right? Um, there's no question about that. But we can touch on a few key ideas. And today what I'm going to do is particularly focus on the whole idea of God's plan for where work fits, you know, picking up on the stuff that we've been looking at or hearing from in the book of Genesis. Okay, so let's tuck in. Uh, what we discover is that God has uh, made us for work. So the Bible kicks off with God getting his hands dirty. Uh, you know, God systematically creates the universe. And he does it from nothing. Right? which is, I think, exceptionally clever. Right? I'm not creative in any way at all, but I'm certainly not creative without nothing. You know? <laughs> I just can't do it, but that's what God does. And God creates beauty and goodness. Um, he's intimately involved in the world, and he sustains it. And God, we're told, makes people. Genesis 1, verse 27. God created humanity or mankind in his own image. And he gives us a responsibility to work in the world. In Genesis 1 verse 26, it says our task is to rule over creation. And the idea is not, you know, with a heavy fist to rule over creation. The idea is to tend the world, you know, to actually responsibly care for the world. That's the sort of picture. We get to chapter 1 verse 28, and the instruction there is to fill the earth and subdue it. And the Lord... God, he takes uh, the man uh, and in due course the man and the woman and places him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. This is the framework, the plan of God. Now, can I say God didn't have to make it this way? He could have made a very self-propagating sort of world. He could have made it so your house already had pop-up sprinklers, right? You know, that sort of, and the garden was sort of self-watering and self-tending. He could have done that. You know, he could have set up the world so that animals took care of themselves. You know, the sheep, each year, you know, they just, every time, once their fleeces are grown, they just all line up and go to a certain point and shake their shoulders and the fleece pops up, you know, onto the ground, piled up in a corner, you know. He could have, he could have created a world which was much more like that, you know, when you are hungry and just you know, taking a walk beside a river and you got hungry, you know, fish jump out onto a fry pan and cook themselves. You know, it, it could have been like that, creating all the space in the world just so that we could relax and watch Netflix and read books and go to hipster cafes and drink coffee and just take it easy. But that's not the way God has made it. We've been made to work. And also I reckon we're like God in the sense that 
we're made in his image, and part of that is being made to be creative. Uh, now, I said before, I'm not, um, I do not have a creative bone in my body, right? And that extends even to practical tasks, right? I can't do anything around the home. Anything is a challenge, right? The, the other day, um, we, a couple of months ago, we had a leaking um, faucet or, you know, shower head in our bathroom. You know, it was drip, 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 um, which was really irritating so at night. And, uh, but, of course, I felt every time I try and repair those sort of things, I normally break them, you know, and I thought that was better than, you know, on the, on the ground. But Sue went out one morning. I decided, I'm going to fix this washer, you know. So I got, I got my tools out once I found them, you know, and, uh, and I pulled it apart, replaced the washer, and I stopped the leak, right? It stopped dripping. I thought this, yeah, thank you. You know, I did. I felt this inordinate sense of pride that I'd accomplished this task. You know, Sue came home. I insisted that she come up to the bathroom and have a look at the tap that was no longer dripping, you know, and uh, admire and praise me for this. I hung around at the front fence for about three hours, hoping <laughs> neighbours would go past. So I could say, what have you been doing this morning? You know, and they would ask me the same question. Oh, I fixed a tap. Do you want to come and have a look? You know, like, I th- do you get that sense of pride when you actually accomplish something and tick it off or create something or repair something or, you know, seamstress address or paint a picture, whatever it is. I think that's an element of us being made in the image of God. And I think that what we're told here in these early chapters of Genesis is that we're, we're subcontractors in God's world. You know, we are... People who've been given a delegated responsibility to care for the planet. But bear in mind, it is a planet that God owns. You know, we're sort of lessees in this planet. And we have responsibilities when it comes to it. But uh, here's the thing. Uh, When you live in this world, no matter what you do, You know, whether you earn a salary or you don't earn a salary or you're unemployed or um, retired or a child at school, whatever your situation in life, uh, the reality is because we live in God's world, he's always the boss. He's always the one we're ultimately accountable to. Listen to what it says in Colossians chapter 3. It says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, whatever you do, whatever your stage of life, God is always the big boss. Made you, made the world, and for serving him. Okay, God creates. What we discover as we work through um, the Bible, though, is that uh, things break down. See, if you stopped at the end of Genesis 2, you'd think life is just going to be cushy and, and, and go well, you know, all sort of hang together. Um, But by the end of Genesis chapter 3, this ideal world is shattered. In Genesis chapter 3, we discover that God is rejected. And actually, it's like a a virus that infects everything. You know, it just corrupts the whole world. Chapter 3, verse 17, God is speaking to Adam and says this. Uh, This is in in the face of their rebellion against him, Adam and Eve. He says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you'll eat of it all the days of your life. 
it will produce thorns and thistles. See, work involves pain. Through painful toil, you'll eat. Work is frustrating. It'll produce thorns and thistles. You know, two weeks ago, I mowed my lawn. But I will guarantee sometime in the next six months, I'll just have to do it again. You know, like it's just, that's life in a garden, isn't it? You just sort of, it goes round and round. Work is hard, verse 19. By the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food. And then work is ultimately pointless. So verse 19, to dust you will return. Uh, I, I had breakfast once a fortnight with a guy who is a world-beating, well, a retired world-beating hematologist. And he was actually about 20, 25 years ago now, right at the forefront of developing new cancer research techniques to treat people with lymphoma. And, uh, you know, I think if, you, if you're trying to work at a job that has significance and purpose and value, you know... That'd be, that'd be getting close to it, wouldn't it, you know? One of the world-leading haematologists in lymphoma, right? Pretty, pretty impressive. But here's the thing. As I caught up with him over the years, uh, his job was very frustrating, right? He had to work with hospital administrators. Oh, apparently they're terrible people. You know, sorry if you are one, I'm, I apologise. But, you know, like, you know, he had to work with people he didn't necessarily find it easy to work with. He... There were all sorts of struggles in the way in which he went about it and frustrations. So even though what he was doing uh, was worthwhile. But you know, at the end of the day, with his long-range spectacles on, he knew that there was a very limited scope to what he did. Uh, so Sue had lymphoma a few years ago, and this guy actually treated Sue. Uh, and we were... Very thankful for the work he'd done developing the treatment she received <laughs> and the fact that he took such good care of her and the other staff did. And we're very thankful for the results it produced. But we all knew that he just put off the inevitable. As I, you know, we're not thinking necessarily Sue's going to die of lymphoma. We don't know what she's going to die of. I don't know what I'm going to do. You don't know what you're going to die of, probably. Uh, so we don't know. But ultimately, we do know we're all going to die. And this guy, this friend of mine who did this world-beating lymphoma research, he knows it's just reprieving. You know, it's a reprieve, an extension of life. It actually doesn't change the bottom line. Whereas it says here in verse 19 of chapter 3 of Genesis, we will all turn to dust. Okay, so we have work. We're created by God to work. Uh, We understand that a rejection of God in this world leads to consequences and fragility in the created order of things and impacts our work. But there's also just this pragmatic necessity of work in our world. Genesis 1 and 2 shows the way in which God sets things up so that Adam and Eve actually cultivate food for their existence. You know, there's that cycle of life that operates the same idea gets repeated throughout the Bible in lots of ways, but let me read from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Uh, Paul at this point talking to a church, and it's a church where people were saying, Jesus is coming back any time, we might as well down tools, put out the deck chairs you know, by the pool, and just have drinks and nibbles while we wait for Jesus to show up. Okay, was that sort of 
misunderstanding of what was going on in life. And in that context, Paul says this to the church. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and doesn't live according to the teaching you receive from us. And then later on in verse 10, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Now get the the essential idea here is a really key part of work is just to provide for our needs. You know, food on the table, roof over our head, uh, provide generously for those in need, you know, elsewhere in the Bible, provide for the work of the gospel going out. Although let me say, here in 2 Thessalonians, you need to be really clear, it's, it's talking about those who won't work. It's not talking about those who can't find work. Right? Um, and uh, Paul is tackling the first, not the second. Uh, we live in a society where those who can't find work are able to be provided by those who do have work. And I think that's an appropriate way to care relationally and responsibly responsibly for one another okay there it is the framework right creation work is good works frustrating works necessary okay that's that's the sort of uh, brief framework you see established here really in the bible i i think that what we have here is what i think is a brilliant framework not just for understanding work but actually for understanding life in this world and the Bible stands head and shoulders above any other world philosophy in terms of accounting for life as we understand it and accounting for our purpose and direction in life. What I'm going to do is just throw up a couple of diagrams on the screen to try and capture some of these ideas that we've just been talking about. Um, I'm going to go through them really quickly. So if you are a note taker and are trying to draw diagrams, don't you'll get frustrated because I'm going to flick too quickly. If you really desperately want these diagrams that I didn't draw because I'm not creative but got someone else to do, uh, just send me an email and I'll make sure I send you a copy of these. Okay? You may not want them, that's fine. But if you do, just try and focus rather than draw diagrams. Right? The first one that comes up here on the, the screen is really my effort to capture Genesis 1 and 2. Right? So God makes us. He gives us meaning and purpose. He makes the world, and the world is good. And our job is to take responsible, responsibility for care for the world. Okay, That's the, the way God has created. Then I'm going to flick to this next diagram, because what you see here is the situation at the end of Genesis chapter 3. Uh, Adam and Eve, and everyone who comes after them, they reject God. They have broken relationship with God. And as a result... God actually passes judgment both on the created order and humanity, right? There's a destroyed relationship between God and both, or at least an impaired relationship. And so instead of actually looking to God for our meaning and purpose, the one who made us for himself, what happens in this world with a, with a cut-off relationship with God, we tend to look to the creation to give us our sense of significance and purpose. And you, we all know that in practical ways. So, you know, when it comes to work, we think work actually tells us how important we are. Yeah? Now, isn't that stupidity? <laughs> to think the thing we're meant to put effort into, we now look to actually give us a sense of who we are 
rather than God. You see, and that's the problem with uh, Genesis chapter 3 and our failure to honour God. It's all, it turns everything upside down, all back to front. And then in this third diagram, I'm, I just sort of try and pull out the implications for work. Because God has frustrated creation, he's therefore frustrated work. And instead of us seeing that we're to responsibly care for, for the creation, which would be frustrating anyway, we looked at that creation to give us our sense of identity and purpose. And work was just never meant to play that role in our lives. Like anything in creation is not meant to play that role in our lives. Okay? What I'm going to do for just a, a couple of minutes is to start playing with some of those ideas with you. Yeah, to actually think through what, what are the implications uh, when it comes to thinking about some of those, those, sort of, um, those sort of problems that we now engage in, and particularly as it applies to work. In a post-Genesis 3 world, as I've said, I think what tends to happen is that we tend to look to our work to provide us with a sense of self-worth. And that can work in one of two, two ways. You can have a job that you think is significant and makes you feel better about yourself, or you can have a job that you think is less significant or no job at all, and that makes you feel lousy about yourself. You know? But both are not meant to be the case. Right? It's just not the way things are meant, meant to work. And throughout history, it's the case that most cultures have had almost a... Uh, a caste system when it comes to work and what work is valued. So the ancient Greeks, they looked down on those who were engaged in physical labour. Aristotle made this comment. He said, Citizens of the state must not lead the life of mechanics or tradesmen, for such a life is ignoble and against all virtue. And you probably know in the ancient world they employed or had slaves to actually tackle those tasks for them. You know, that, that was sort of below people. But can I say, God does not value us based on our gifts, our intelligence, our skills, our shrewdness, or our jobs. He does not view us that way. Wouldn't it be strange if he did? <laughs> really strange, you know. I... You know, God, not me, but God, you know, I made Tim Zamagius and I gave him these gifts and these abilities to do certain things with his life and certain intelligence and everything like that, right? And, you know, for Tim then to get his sense of identity, not from the God who made him, but from the exercise of those gifts in other areas. See, it's all sort of bizarrely wrong. And, but that, that's the case and that's the tendency that we have in this world, God made us, and he's given each of us different gifts and abilities. Wouldn't it then be really strange if he valued some of us more than others, given he made us all? It would just be a weird sort of thing, I think. And that's the reality. God doesn't think a high court judge is of any more value than someone who's a checkout operator at Coles. Not in God's eyes. Not at all. But I guess I wonder whether... We tend to. wouldn't be surprising. We live in a culture that does that. And I'd expect that there's a risk that as a community of God's people, we might tend to do that a bit. Uh, yeah, the guy I had, had breakfast with, the hematologist, uh, he's a professor of medicine. 
And uh, I remember one morning when I was in the city, he was serving morning tea, you know, serving the coffee at the morning tea table. And a newcomer who didn't know him, uh, or sorry, knew him, but was new to church, uh, came up to me. I didn't know this newcomer. And they said to me, do you see that man over there serving the coffee? Did you know he's a professor of medicine? You know? And I, got, I knew exactly what they were saying. And I said, I said, no, it's okay. We let professors of medicine serve coffee here. It's okay, you know? <laughs> you see, it, isn't it easy just to do that sort of pecking order thing when it comes to our world? It's subtle. It really is very subtle. So let me run a few tests past you. If you're in a paid employment role right now, how would you feel if you lost your job and you're on unemployment benefits? Would you feel um, would you feel differently about yourself? I don't mean there'd be practical implications. I get that, but would you feel differently about you? Think your value had somehow gone down because you didn't have a job? No. Not if you're in Christ. I'm not saying there aren't problems with it, but not when it comes to who you are. Or say you're a stay-at-home parent. I think our culture for stay-at-home parents is really tricky because the culture says stay-at-home parenting, well, we want to say there's merit in that, but really, when are you going to get back to the workforce and do something significant? You know, <laughs> What could be more important than investing in the lives of children for eternity? Yeah? Isn't it a crazy way to think, the way our society operates at that point? Or retirees. Uh, there'd be a few in that category here, I reckon. Um, now, when you introduce yourself to people and you have the, the what, what do you do question... Do you answer by saying, you know, I'm retired? Or do you tell the people the job you used to do? Oh, you know, um, it'd be like, you know, as a pastor. I introduce myself as a pastor and people look at me weirdly and I say, but I used to be normal, I was a lawyer, you know, which is not particularly normal right now. But, you know, it's easy, isn't it, to um, go through a rethinking of yourself and think that actually what you do is so important. But the breakfast group I met with once a fortnight, all the guys are about 10 years older than me, so that, or, or more. So some of them are retired, some of them have just retired, some of them are about to retire. And they all talk about the relevance deficit they suffer. You know, they used to go into work and everyone would know who they are. One of the guys who retired from a hospital said he went in there the other day, 12 months later, and um, someone on the door came up to ask if they could help him. You know, <laughs> you know, totally forgotten. You know, totally irrelevant. You know, our identity comes from God, not not our employment. So let me ask a few questions when it comes to jobs. Um, I think one of the big things in our culture is we look for uh, we we think it's appropriate as Christians that we should fulfil our potential when it comes to living in this world. And I think that applies to um, unbelievers as well as believers in our world. Uh, that is, people, if you have no God, you've got to fulfill your potential somehow, so I'll do it through my work or through other sorts of things. But I reckon we Christianise that for those of us who are believers, and we do it by saying it this way. 
God wants me to do the best I can or to be the best and then you substitute task in there, you know, um, mechanic or baker or nurse or CEO or garbage collector. You just put it, God wants me to be the best X that I can possibly be. And so at this point, it's less about what you do, but excelling at what you do, you know, for the glory and the honour of God. Now, don't you reckon that sounds more Christian? Don't you reckon? But it's not. Okay? It's not. Let me explain why I don't think it's Christian at all. Uh, firstly, because I reckon it's impossible. Uh, did I do as well at year 12 as I could have done? No. Did I do as well at law school as I could have done? No. Was I the best lawyer I could possibly have been? No. Have I reached my full potential as a pastor? No. I'm really sorry about that, but I haven't. You know, like, do you know what I mean? And isn't that life? You actually can't ever quite get there. And then if you just add in all the things that you're meant to do with your life, you really quickly discover why it is impossible. Expand the category beyond work. Does God want me to be the best pastor, husband, father, grandfather, neighbor, citizen, church member, sporting club member I can possibly be? No. I mean, if you, you're like me, often you feel like they're in competition with each other. How can you possibly excel at them all? But here's the thing. This side of Genesis chapter 3, God has actually frustrated, frustrated our ability to reach our potential. Do you understand that's part of the curse of living in this world? It stands under the judgment of God. God, can I say, he doesn't want, to, want us to reach our full potential at work because otherwise it actually makes it too important, certainly more important than God thinks it is. The way we reach our full potential, actually, is by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and then... The question of the fullness of our potential will only happen when we're raised from the dead. You can never possibly reach your full potential in this world. Okay? So should we look for job satisfaction? You know, if, should we look for a job where we enjoy it? Let me read from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. I know that there's nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This is the gift of God. It is good to have work and it's a real bonus if you enjoy it. That's a good thing too actually. But it's unrealistic to think that there won't be struggles with work in this world. Stress, difficult colleagues, unreasonable uh, clients or people you serve, dishonesty, exhaustion, tedium. Um, you know, I have um, loved being a pastor and I continue to love being a pastor. I love being a lawyer. And I've got lots of, you know, uh, satisfaction out of both those. But, you know, only, only God can satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. Jesus encounters a woman at the well in John chapter 4. It's great to have a read of this. And she's a woman who has extraordinarily deep needs. She's been in a series of relationships with different men, number of husbands, living with a man. And 
Jesus says to her these words when, when she's asking him to get water for her. He says, everyone who drinks this water, talking about the well that they're standing beside, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I can give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So the only way any person gets satisfaction or fulfilment in any ultimate sense is by having relationship with the one who fills us up with life and hope and forgiveness and love and purpose and direction. Now, can I say, if you're here today and you don't know that, if you're, you know, fishing around in all sorts of other ponds and wells for satisfaction and purpose, uh, make sure you sort that one out. It's so foundational. Have a chat with Colin or one of the other people. Have a chat with me. But you, you need to know what it means to have life at the very heart of things and that that might flow over into everything you do. Well, what about work and money? Uh, she'll be aimed for jobs that earn more money or is that just a bit sort of tacky, you know, <laughs> a bit mercenary? Should we change jobs because we get offered more money to work elsewhere? Is that a bit sub-Christian? You know, how should we approach that sort of thing? Can I say, when I read through the Bible, and particularly the New Testament, it seems to me there's nothing wrong with Christians earning stacks of money. I don't think the Bible ever says anything against that. Uh, it's also not an issue if you don't earn much at all or nothing. Right? Neither are actually an issue when it comes to the Bible. If you, you want to read through... a passage to think about money and life 1 Timothy 6 is a great place to go Um, there Paul is actually speaking to those who have quite a bit of money and his instruction to them is not stop making money right he doesn't say that but rather he says be generous with what God has given you right being in love with money that's the danger now isn't that interesting because in our culture isn't it the case that we measure people by what they earn, where they live, what they drive, what they wear, where they go on holidays, you know, when they can go on holidays again? <laughs> you know, that's the way in which we tend to measure. And of course, that's the Genesis 3 era, isn't it? It's the era of looking to creation for our value rather than the creator is made all good things. Right? Find to earn money, just work out a way, giving lots of it away. That's, that's really the instruction of the Bible, to be generous to other people. What we've done ever so briefly is think about the joys and the frustrations um, of work, but, but more importantly, the way God has made us and made this world. The Bible tells us we made the image of God, and that will involve working, whether it's paid or not. That is, we, we serve the Lord in his world, Uh, for however many days he grants you in this life. Sometimes you might get paid for that, sometimes you might not, but that is our purpose. And there's meant to be satisfaction and dignity and enjoyment when it comes to work. But this side of Genesis chapter 3, even the best of work is going to be frustrating and tedious. It has to be to to differing degrees. Now, in Australia, can I say... We overemphasize the place of a job or a career has in providing us with a sense of who we are, both for positive and for negative. 
Some of us have jobs that make us feel really good about ourselves. Some of us have jobs that make us feel less good about ourselves. Some of us don't have jobs that make us feel something about ourselves. You know, like that is just the way in which we roll in this country. But as Christians, what we tend to do is to adopt what our, our nation says. Work is important for defining who you are. So what we tend to do is put this spiritual gloss on it and try and Christianize it. But actually, the way the Bible frames it totally revolutionizes our thinking. Work has nothing to do with your value as a person, right? Absolutely nothing. It's just one aspect or one way in which we serve God in his world. We need to have that really clear. And what we're going to do in the next couple of weeks is just explore, just, just tease out a few of the strands in that picture to try and help us know who we are and how God has um, made us for serving him. All right? So as we said before, uh, Colin and I were talking, it's, I think it's relevant to us all, no matter where you fit, where you sit, uh, and hopefully it'll have some particular application to those of us who still get paid to do what we do. Right? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your uh, wonderful grace towards us in your Son. Uh, Father, we thank you uh, that you are the one who made us for relationship with you. And we do ask that you give us just that clarity that being in a relationship with you determines who we are, uh, our value, our purpose, our identity. And Father, help us to understand that more profoundly so that as we apply ourselves to caring for your world and to caring for the people in this world, we'll have the strongest uh, sense of serving you, uh, being accountable to you as our boss, our loving Heavenly Father. And Father, we ask that in these coming weeks, you'll give us a chance just to explore and tease that apart in a whole range of ways. And we commend ourselves to you as we do it. In Jesus' name, amen.